Corporate fraud works best in the shadows, behind corporate walls. How does the government bring these wrongdoers to justice? Whistleblowers. These are the stories of those who risk their careers to shine a light on allegations of fraud. Today on Fraud in America. All right, welcome. Uh, today we have the great pleasure of speaking with Joyce Branda, 37 years with the Department of Justice, longtime public servant, uh, an exceptional career dating back to the uh, Jimmy Carter era. She was actually hired by uh, my predecessor, Jim Warman, when he was the Assistant Attorney General. Uh, she rose through the ranks, becoming the Deputy Assistant Attorney General in civil at the Civil Division. Uh, she was in charge of an office of over 100 attorneys involved in the False Claims Act cases that we talk about quite often uh, in on this show. So, Joyce, welcome to today's program. I appreciate you speaking with us. Thank you, Jim. So, Joyce, uh, we're going to cover a lot of things. I've talked to a lot of people, as I told you before we jumped on. Uh, people talk about you as being a style icon in the office. They talk about uh, how um, how much respect people had for you um, in the office, both at the Department of Justice and the Relators Bar, and even, dare I say, on the defense side uh, of the shop. Um, but the one thing people wanted me to ask you about is the uh, exceptional softball skills of your office um, and the Branded Cup. It, what is the Branded Cup that I keep hearing about? <laughs> Well, now you're really testing my memory three years out of the department. But um, no, there was a um, uh, we had a softball team and uh, the, uh, there was a legend that we would hire people based on their softball skills. Um, I didn't do that. Mike Hertz, my predecessor, may have done that. But we had a very, very a really great softball team. And I think at one point they were called trouble damages, if I'm not mistaken. And when I was the acting assistant attorney general, uh, they traditionally, the civil division names the cup that is the reward at the end of a competition among the various branches of the division. Uh, that cup is named after the assistant attorney general. So I had a cup named after me for that six month period of time that I was the acting. That's what the Branda Cup is. But the fraud section actually usually did pretty well, although I will say that Appellate mm, probably would correct me on that because uh, Appellate had a hell of a team. So talk to Doug Letter and see what he says about that, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, Joyce, I, you know, I'm, I'm, of course, I've known you for many, many years, but I really don't know a lot about um, your childhood. I, I knew a lot of the stuff uh, about uh, pre-DOJ years, uh, you're in secret, you know, doing research on you has been uh, difficult. Um, so where did you grow up? What's your backstory uh, before going to the Justice Department? So, um, well, I grew up like many of us in New Jersey. Uh, I'm a Jersey <laughs> girl and uh, born in New York, born in Brooklyn, raised in New Jersey, went to Glen Rock High School, um, which parent, by the way, uh, a very fine lawyer at Wilmer named Howard Shapiro discovered uh, at one point a few years ago that we had both gone to Glenrock High School. Very interesting. Um, and uh, so I grew up in New Jersey. My father was a lawyer. My, I grew up with one sister. Uh, my father used to say when we were kids that we would never be married until we were 33 years old and we would both be lawyers and we would laugh at him because, of course, that was ridiculous. And uh, lo and behold, uh, I went off to school in Boston, came back, to the Washington area, went to law school, and there you have it. Came a lawyer. Um, as a father of a, a nine-year-old daughter, I like that 33-year rule. That's, that's <laughs> a good one. I like that. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you went to uh, law school. Where'd you go to law school? Went to the University of Maryland. I, lived, uh -huh. I had moved down to Baltimore after going to Tufts in Boston. Um, my yeah. boyfriend at the time was a medical student at the University of Maryland Medical School. I went to the University of Maryland Law School for $800 a semester. Wow, nice. Back in 1973, uh, it was quite a bargain. Um, and actually, we had a really distinguished class of lawyers. Um, one of my classmates was John Bates, the uh, uh, federal judge, as many of you know, yeah. very fine judge. And a number of very, very fine lawyers came out of that class. It's just kind of an interesting class. In addition, Elijah Cummings was in my law school class. Wow. Um, 
and I graduated, I graduated with Elijah, um, who was quite a force, uh, force of nature back then. Um, yeah. So my first job out of law school was I, um, you know, I had always, I had always wanted to do public interest work. I always knew I was going to do that the question was how. So when I came out of law school, the university paired with a law firm called Piper Marbury at the time. And, um, they sponsored a legal services clinic with the law school. So I was one of three um, lawyers who staffed the clinic and we taught law students and we did social security disability, mm. uh, prison and jail rights. Um, and um, it was a very, and landlord tenant law. And it was a very, very fun, wonderful experience. So I was there for two years. Um, then I went, decided to sell my oats in California. And I drove out to California and I was going to live there, changed my mind, came back, um, worked for a law firm for a couple of years and um, decided since the only thing I was doing happily at the law firm was pro bono work, that it didn't seem to make much sense to stay there. Right. So I uh, came to the department in 1980 and that's how I landed at the department. Okay, great. And, and uh, if I remember right, you were in the lands division, right? Uh, at DOJ, right? What kind of cases did you work at? Uh, work on it first uh, with Justice Department. I was hired as one of twenty-five lawyers to staff a new environmental enforcement section. It was the first time the department had an affirmative enforcement section in the Lands Division. And um, while I was there, the uh, CERCLA, the Superfund uh, statute, was enacted, and of course there was Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, and what we did was enforce those statutes. And it was incredibly interesting. I, I like one of my first cases involved um, illegal emissions from uh, plastics plants. They were called vinyl chloride emissions, and they were really toxic carcinogens. And um, I handled that case. I also handled a number of cases against Bethlehem Steel. And I remember vividly traveling to some remote place in Indiana and putting on a pair of boots and some <laughs> fire retardant equipment and trekking around on top of a coke. Um, yeah. co-commissions oven, basically, mm -hmm. um, to try to learn, you know, about sort of what my case was about. And um, it, yeah, I mean, that's what I did. It was really, really great. It was a really intense experience for two years, but I decided at some point along the line that unless I wanted to be an environmental lawyer for the rest of my life, it didn't mm -hmm. make a whole lot of sense to stay there. So I started looking at the civil division, thinking it was going to be more, you know, sort of more mainstream, uh, mainstream law practice. Because, uh, you know, I didn't really think I was going to end up an environmental lawyer representing companies that, you know, uh, were charged with polluting the environment. That was not in my future. Yeah. Um, so I went to the, I saw the commercial litigation branch and the fraud section. I thought, aha, you know, plaintiff's work is what I want to do. Yeah. It's kind of fun and interesting. I didn't know a whole lot about it. I interviewed with the director at the time, a woman named Jane Rastani, who was um, a true force of nature, wonderful lawyer, incredible person, became a uh, court of international trade judge while uh, I was there, actually two years after I, I arrived, two or three years after I arrived, she was nominated and confirmed as a judge. Um, and the section at the time had 20 lawyers when I arrived, and, wow. we, and we did False Claims Act enforcement. Um, 20 lawyers in a little building where the Arnold Porter building stands right now is called the Todd Building, and uh, we were on the 11th floor, and um, it was it was really quite a different environment than the fraud section now. So what, what year was this? This was 1982. 1982. So four years before the False Claims Act was uh, amended, uh, you were already doing False Claims Act cases. Absolutely. And what we did yeah. was basically the, the practice back then um, was that the FBI would generate 302s, which are, you know, interview notes, basically, by FBI agents. And we would get those circulated to us. And they would land on our desk and we would be asked to figure out there was a fraud case there. So the first thing you do is pick up the phone and call the FBI agent. And the FBI agent gets a call from a civil division attorney and they aren't interested. So that, that was a challenging way to develop cases. We also got referrals from agencies through either 
the defense uh, contract audit agency, DCAA, would generate an audit report and we would take it from there. Or the inspectors general would generate some sort of a referral or the general counsels would generate some sort of referral. But it was really agency-based referrals. And back then when I got there from 1982 to you know, 1987, there was really one lawyer who was handling QUTAM cases. Um, his name was Vince Turlop. He was a hell of a lawyer, a wonderful guy. Unfortunately, he passed away a number of years ago, but Vince was the QUTAM lawyer. Mm-hmm. And so whenever there was a QUTAM case filed, Vince would get it and Vince would handle it. And he was the office expert. That's what it was. <laughs> One person in the entire country. Wow, wow. <laughs> so this is um, during the era of the, the, the stories about the $900 hammers and the toilet seats and things like that. At, at some point, had you heard stories uh, rumbling on the hill that they were going to amend the False Claims Act? Was that on your radar during this time or was this kind of below the radar screen? Well, you know, that was probably a few years after I arrived. So that was probably, I guess, 85 or so. I'm not sure I knew of anything much before the amendments because what was happening in the, you know, I was a a trial lawyer and I was doing my job, which was, you know, looking at case files and trying to develop cases. And um, there was a, uh, one of the supervisors in the office, Bob Ashbaugh, the deputy in the office, time actually yeah he was the deputy at the time to uh, to mike hertz uh who came in 1983 and was the director uh, for many years after that as you know um but bob was was the point person for the false claims act amendments and really he and mike i think were were shepherding the thing through i was not a supervisor at the time so it sort of was below the radar radar for the trial lawyers we knew something was going on um and as as the amendments started getting getting more sort of life to them we all you know have got wind of what was going on was there a sense that this was a good thing for the justice department or the then the false claims act this would lead to uh more effective use of the false claims act well you know yes of course you know as i remember we you know the, the department was very much an advocate for the amendments um particularly the clarifications on burden of proof the knowledge standard, the increase to treble damages and civil penalties increase, all of those things were really necessary um, to the department. And there was no question about it. By the same token, we knew that there was a great interest, and John Phillips, I'm sure, will speak to this, and Senator Grassley will, there was great interest in, in the whistleblower provisions. You know, particularly, you know, in the environment that we were in, we there was a great interest, obviously, in getting more cases to the department. Um, and, you know, there was certainly an understanding about that. You know, to be honest, was everybody really thrilled that there were these QUTAM provisions and how they were going to work and you know, how this partnership was going to evolve? You know, it was very difficult to kind of conceive of that back then. You know, I mean, department lawyers operate as department lawyers, you know, we represent the United States. And, you know, to have this this third party, if you will, influence or, you know, basically be in the middle of enforcement efforts was something that was difficult for people to process. You know, how was this really going to happen? Um, so, but, you know, on balance, I think everybody knew that the the amendments, the 86 amendments were really, really significant to, to, to false claims act enforcement. No question. Mm. And that um, that public-private partnership, which now um, you know feels like very much like a partnership, but back then the way you're describing it is kind of um, that relators council and and relators weren't really a part of the partnership, or is that is that too strong to say? You mean early in the the, the regime after the, mm-hmm. the after right after the amendment? Yeah, I think mm-hmm. that, you know a lot of what happened was policy was developing as the cases were developing. Yeah, And, you know, we didn't start out with an agenda or an understanding of how this was going to all play out. Nobody really knew. I think the sensitivities were, as you can understand, the sensitivities were the fact that when we conduct investigations, you know, historically, and it's still true, there are many sensitive issues around investigations, right? I mean, 
they're out of the public eye. You're not yet accusing or naming a defendant of wrongdoing. And so there are great sensitivities to protecting the integrity of that investigation. So the notion that we would share information in that process was really, you know, that was hard stuff. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I think that that was one, one very clear sort of um, problem area we all faced. The other was privilege, you know, like the extent to which we're talking to our client agencies or you know, interviewing witnesses or um, dealing with the criminal side. Um, you know, maybe there's grand jury information. How do you share that information? You know, is there isn't there a problem with sharing that information? So all of this stuff was really novel. It made it interesting, obviously. You know, because sure. you know, Mike Hertz used to say, "We make this stuff up as we go along." You know, I mean, and then you know, he was being facetious, but honestly, we had to. There was there was no playbook. So um, I do think that there were hesitancies and there were concerns about sort of opening the books, if you will, to a relator and a relator's lawyer. That seemed to us to be a problem area that we had to sort out. And it Mm. took a while to do that. So what helped move that along? Were there some bumps? I know there were bumps in the road uh, from from our side. Uh, What helped uh, establish those policies along for state history? I mean, that's a good question. I I can't name any one thing. You know, we started Mm -hmm. to draft, you know, these sharing agreements. At this point, we realized, well, you know, maybe if we had an agreement about what could be shared, what couldn't be shared, um, and we talked about the common interest, common interest protection to waiving privilege. Right. Maybe that would get us to a place where we could share certain information. Yeah, that was of course huge from our side. From yeah. our side, you know, that was huge for us to understand. Yeah. Um, so you know, there. I think that is one thing, and I think that that at some point we felt more comfortable about doing that. Um, you know, I, I think some of it too, Jeb, had to do with trusting the, the way these things were going to play out. Yeah. Um, and that, um, uh, you know, we, uh, we weren't going to be held to waive privilege. There was some problematic case laws, I remember, you know, I mean, like, yeah. yeah, there was definitely a risk of waiver. And I think that still looms out there large. Um, so, you know, I think there's, there still has to be care taken. And I think the Relators Bar has grown to understand those issues, I think, mm-hmm. I hope. Um, and how, you know, there has to be a balance struck between sharing information that helps advance the investigation and protects the lawful, you know, the interests of the United States that balance with, you know, making sure that you know, we, we get as much cooperation and help as we can from a later. You know, it's in, in, I joined Taft a few weeks after Stevens came out. Um, so the Stevens case we talked about earlier was a Supreme Court case that established the constitutionality of the key time provisions, the whistleblower provisions. Uh, and in speaking with uh, John Phillips and others during this time that we're talking about, there was a question about whether or not what we were doing was even going to be around. Uh, next term or the next year, given the constitutional uh, doubts that were out there. Um, can you talk a little bit about the expansion of the False Claims Act, especially in the 90s, mainly defense cases during this time, right, Joyce? Yeah, I mean, what happened, I think, um, I mean, look, the 86 Amendments acknowledged the fact that there was a lot of defense procurement fraud and that there, were, there had to be a way to address it. And, you know, just just to go off on a little bit of a tangent, you know, my own personal career, all I did was defense procurement fraud um, in the, uh, you know, sort of in the early days in the 80s and the the early 90s. That's, that's what, that's how I spent my time. And that's how many people spent their time. We had, I organized a number of defense procurement fraud conferences where we had government people convene in one place to figure out how do we do these cases better. Um, we tried to coordinate with the criminal side in a way that, you know, I think the criminal side had not really done in the past. There was Operation Ill Wind, which was, an, you know, a major defense department investigation that exposed corruption and bribery at the highest levels of the Department of Defense. It was, this was big stuff. And the money was there. And the defense industry was much more fractionated than it became later when 
consolidation happened. So, um, you know, that was my career, and that's what happened with the False Claims Act. That's what we were doing. You know, one of the biggest QUITAM cases in the early, early years was a case called Gravit involving General Electric, and Vince Turlip handled that case, as a matter of fact. And that was a big uh, defense procurement fraud case involving GE, a very well-known uh, relator's lawyer handled, handled that case. So that was one of the first cases after the 86 amendments, as I recall, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, sort of dealt with the relator's share issue and all of that. Unfortunately, I had to go to litigation, but, you know, that it is what it is. That, that's what happened. But what happened, I think, is that, that uh, you know, then the practice sort of started to move in the direction of healthcare fraud. And then when HIPAA was enacted in 1996, and we got the resources that HIPAA gave us, which was came out of the healthcare fraud and abuse control account, uh, which was funded basically on the basis of healthcare fraud recoveries. Um, Things started moving in the direction of healthcare, and all and, and the department's attorneys started to spend more and more time, and it ratcheted up slowly until, um, you know, the point when healthcare became the dominant, uh, the dominant caseload, and still is right. <laughs> all these years later, healthcare it's, remains, yeah. The big so uh, during this time, did you um, predict that healthcare would soon overtake defense, or did you think uh, the defense is where it's going to be for the next 20, 30 years? You know, I think we all, I don't know, I can't remember what I was thinking at the time. I think that it yeah. sort of happened gradually. I mean, interestingly, we had we had one senior trial counsel who was responsible for the healthcare fraud caseload pretty much. And he was pretty much the person uh, up until the early 90s um, when I think our management started to see that healthcare was taking off. Um, I I got personally involved in it, I think when I became the deputy in, in 91 of the fraud section. And uh, so then I, I got a lot more involved personally in supervising the cases and dealing with some of the policy issues. Um, at some point in that time frame, and I think it was probably after HIPAA was enacted, we had always had a healthcare fraud coordinator in the fraud section so that we had one person sort of overseeing what was going on with HHS, with CMS. And with the policy stuff and legislation, regs, that kind of thing. I don't know that, that any of us really predicted where healthcare would go, but we all knew that the spending was so huge yeah. that, you know, the crooks go where the money is, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there was bound to be Medicare fraud and there was bound to be Medicaid fraud just because of the dollars. So um, during this time, is the uh, civil frauds growing more and more attorneys? You started out, I think you said 20, 25 attorneys. What are we up to during this time? Um, you know, I think I, I don't I don't really remember when it happened, but it, it grew. It grew to a, a, a at some point we had over 100. I think it was maybe 20 lawyers Yeah. Um, in the section. When I was there, I think I, I was the director and maybe at that point when it got that big um, and sort of grew gradually. But what really happened was between the 3% fund, which is a fund that um, is, you know, it's basically a statute that Congress enacted that um, uh, allowed the department to receive money based on debt collection. Uh, and we could fund positions with those dollars. That came along, and I can't remember the year of that, actually, it was probably around the time of HIPAA, and then HIPAA created the uh, control account, and that gave us resources to hire people. That's when the hiring really mm. increased dramatically. And uh, during this time, so if we, if I go back, so Taxpayers Against Fraud was founded in 1987, um, but really didn't become kind of a, you know, an association of attorneys until around 2003. Um, could you describe the relators bar, the whistleblower bar during this time up until 2003? You know, it was, I'm not sure how much of a quote bar it was at that mm -hmm. point. There were a number of lawyers who were active. Um, obviously, Phillips and Cohen was active. Um, Jim Helmer was active in Ohio. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Neil Getnick became active around that time. There were a number of lawyers who decided to, 
you know, specialized to the extent that they could in this area. They were, you know, they 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 saw the future, and I, you know, think they understood where where this could go potentially. So I don't know how much of an organization there was at that point. There was, uh, it appeared to us that there were there were definitely conversations. Um, it wasn't as it wasn't as coherent an organization as as TAP has become. Um, so we would deal kind of with the relators bar and really the way you deal with a case, you know, you deal with the relator on a one-on-one basis more than sort of talk to them about policy issues. At some point in the, um, um, in the, in the growth of the statute and, you know, the pre enforcement aspect, the assistant attorney general decided to have some meetings with relators counsel and then have similar meetings with defense counsel. And it would be a roundtable discussion. Um, and um, I'm having trouble remembering who it started with. It may have started with Peter Keisler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, I think that's probably right, uh, who was extraordinary AAG. Um, Absolutely. And um, we would you know, sort of throw it open, invite folks to come and just throw open the discussion to issues that were of concern. It was really very interesting because, you know, you sit here on the one hand and you'd hear Relators Bar complaining about whether it was the government's policy or the defense bar. And then the defense bar would come in and complain about the Relators and, the, and everybody complained about the Justice Department. But um, it was actually a, it was actually a pretty good. It was actually a pretty interesting process. You know, I mean, it yeah. was really. And it, what it did, you know, from the perspective, you know, from Mike's perspective, my perspective and Stuart Schiffer. Schiffer's perspective, and he, of course, was the DAG before uh, the Deputy Assistant Attorney General before uh, Mike Hertz became it and before I became it. He used to say, this is the way we teach the Assistant Attorney General what we're dealing with. Yeah, right. (laughs) It was a a great way to do it. Um, What's the biggest mistake or most common mistake that you see from a relator's counsel? Um, I haven't been there in three years, so maybe y'all are making new mistakes. But but when I was there, uh, I I thought the mistakes that were made were uh, sort of from the from the get go. The biggest mistake was a really lousy complaint. Yeah, (laughs) a complaint that may have had a grain of truth somewhere in it, but it was so rambling and so um, widely cast Mm. that the government was struggling with how to investigate it. And we have a duty to diligently investigate and all of that, take it seriously. But if your first experience with a relator is a poorly drafted complaint that sends you to every haystack on the farm looking for that needle and doesn't give you enough evidence in the evidence you're supposed to supply to really support the case, it it's really a very, very difficult thing to do. And it tends to make the government lawyers just skeptical that there's anything there whatsoever. So that I think is one of the biggest mistakes. And I think that I'd like to think that that's improved over time with conferences and education and experience and people doing their homework. But I, I, I think frankly that the area has become thrown wide open to so many different kinds of lawyers that you still see it and yeah. and people who don't specialize in this don't quite understand it. And then, you know, there are a number of other things I think that, you know, are problematic from the government standpoint, you know, being difficult around the investigation, like not agreeing to reasonable extensions. I mean, we understand that people get frustrated and they want to say enough is enough, but a reasonable extension of time is something that relators uh, should always agree to. And then I think the big mistake from the government standpoint has been and may still be pursuing cases that really shouldn't be pursued because what it does the statute and, and the case law and you know when the government declines a case and talks to the relator and hopefully explains why the case doesn't have merit or the case should not be pursued for various reasons that relator should listen to that you don't have to agree all the time we understand that but very often what happens is the relators go off and they make terrible law for the rest of us and that's not a good thing Amen. <laughs> There's likely somebody listening or watching today's program who's, um, you know, working at a company that, that they've identified some kind of fraud scheme or patient harm that where government dollars are involved. What would you say to that individual? I would say that if you have observed something that you think is wrong, 
and should be corrected. You know, if there's a company process to report that, you should do that. I would never counsel somebody not to go through the compliance process. If you have reason to think that the compliance process is not going to result in a, in a good result for the allegation, and um, you can always, and you should always consult an attorney. You could do that at the outset, even if you do report the fraud to, internally, but don't sit there and sit on your hands. Do something about it. Um, you know, most of these companies are pretty sophisticated now, and they do counsel people to report. And, you know, I think those systems are very important for a company and they should be observed. But you can seek your own counsel and you can get advice about how to go about doing that. You can file a QUITAM case. Of course you can. But there might be a route that is uh, that that isn't a QUITAM route that is perfectly acceptable uh, to you and and maybe better for the company. I would say do that. But you might want to do it with good legal advice. And there, there are plenty of lawyers out there now who practice in this area that can provide that advice. Say something, say something, right? Yeah. So um, if you, uh, at some point over your 37-year career at the Justice Department, uh, had thought about going to the defense side or the relator side, which side would you have picked? Not that you had that thought, but if you had that thought, <laughs> 36 yeah, years that time. No, I mean, to, to be perfectly frank, early on, I think before I, um, before I became a deputy, I thought about going to, into private practice only because, um, you know, I had three children heading off to college and my husband was in private practice, but, you know, we had those financial issues and government salaries, yeah. whatever salary. Um, and, you know, I thought about going into a, a, a private firm and on the defense side. And I just couldn't get my head around it. Um, I thought about waking up every day and going into a, a law firm and doing that work. And, and I asked myself, could I really not think like a government lawyer? And I answered mm -hmm. that question pretty quickly. And the answer was no. So for me, it, 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 it there, there was no choice. This was the career path I, I chose, and I, I, I guess I never, never really regretted it. Yeah. One interesting trend that we've noticed recently, um, I mean, I, I probably rattle off a dozen, including Renee Brooker and recently Greg Shapiro. There's a number of uh, former uh, DOJ attorneys who are now going on the relator side where, you know, 10 years ago that that simply just didn't happen. Why do you think that's happening? Well, I, you know, I do think that, and, and there were some back then, you know, early yeah. on, there were several lawyers. Rob Vogel was one, Shelley Slade was another. Um, there, there, there were lawyers who early on uh, went into, uh, uh, you know, QUITAM work. Um, I think it's because I think people who do this work on the government side really believe in it and believe in the importance of having good lawyers enforcing the statute. And I think people want to continue to do that. I mean, you know, I, I, I actually do. I think they want to make some money. I mean, let's be honest. Um, and you, and as I said, you know, the government salary, you're, you're maxed out at a certain point. So I think the, I think the potential for making some money is obviously there. I mean, let's call it what it is. But I also think the people who do this you know, they kind of think like a government lawyer, right? They, you know, the answer to the question for me was, I think I'm a government lawyer, so I am a government lawyer. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that I think that the people who've done this, um, I, you know, I, I give them a lot of credit. I think it's hard. I think it's, you know, you have to wait out. Um, people say on average five years, you know, before mm -hmm. before you see a, a case uh, a case end. Um, but. But I think that may be part of it that, you know, that they really just want to continue sort of the enforcement aspect and they feel that they can do it on that side while at the same time they have some, you know, some potential for some upside financially. Hmm. So a lot of people brought up when I talked to them, brought up the HCA case when I mentioned your name and the role that you played in that case. Can you talk a little bit about what happened in with the HCA? I mean, one of the largest healthcare fraud cases of all time, right? $1.7 billion, 2003. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was um, it was a saga. One of the relators' lawyers, Steve Marr, called it uh, the case that took longer than World War II. I say, pshaw. The reason that case took a long time is because we ha we had I, I can't even remember the number of cases. It was over forty some cases, I believe, that were pending involving HCA or some HCA affiliate 
that we consolidated into one investigation in order to wrap wrap up the entire thing. I mean, there were a number of issues, right, that we were trying to tell as a story. I mean, mm. this was a hospital chain that at the time we believed was poorly managed. I mean, it, it, that's saying it, saying it in a very genteel way. There were kickbacks. There was overcharging. There were a whole host of healthcare fraud issues. And in many ways, it was a textbook, textbook for healthcare fraud. So the fact that it took a long time was not surprising. The case was resolved in two tranches, some cases in one tranche and other cases in another tranche. And we had many, many QUITAM cases were filed um, while we were investigating that raised all sorts of new issues. So it was a game of whack-a-mole for many years. You know, what's the next allegation to come along. Um, it was really an overwhelming job at the time. Uh, the, on the criminal side, Ann Arbor, who was a colleague uh, in the fraud section, a wonderful, wonderful lawyer, and maybe one of the very few people um, in the department who could have done this, mm-hmm. managed to resolve the criminal side of that case in, 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 a, in a very, um, very good way. Um, and she is, you know, she was my hero, uh, amazing lawyer. She passed away a number of years ago, very, very sadly, but she is, you know, truly, truly was my partner in organizing the resolution of both sets of cases. She was extraordinary. It, it was, you know, it was incredible. We would have, <laughs> we would investigate these cases. Um, we would have a series of meetings with HCA and their lawyers. They had very, very fine lawyers. They had Latham and Watkins represented them. They had a number of other firms were involved um, on the later side. There were very good law firms that were brought in to litigate um, at least one of the sets of cases involving cost reports. And so we had many, many lawyers, many, many allegations, a criminal case to deal with. It, it was really, it, it was really an extraordinary effort. But the the real you know, honestly, the credit goes to the lawyers who handled that those cases. They were amazing lawyers, career lawyers in the department, uh, the fraud section, as well as the U.S. Attorney's offices. They were just extraordinary people who just hung in there to the to the bitter end. You mentioned the U.S. Attorney's offices. Uh, you know, people that are new to this area. Can you talk about that relationship between the U.S. Attorney's offices and Maine Justice, where you were? Sure. Um, when I started in the fraud section, it was rare for the U.S. attorneys to really be involved in civil fraud work because they t- typically on the civil side did defensive work. So they would do tort, tort claims, um, you know, all sorts of all, all sorts of like land, land, you know, uh, ENRG sort of lands cases. Um, but they did very little affirmative civil work because they just kind of, kind of didn't have the resources. Their civil divisions were very thinly staffed. Um, as time went on, affirmative civil enforcement became a thing, and they would establish these things called ACE units, that's affirmative civil enforcement, and they started to hire lawyers dedicated to just affirmative work. So as time went on, the U.S. attorneys got their, their resources ramped up um, along with, you know, they got resources from HIPAA, uh, 3% fund, and their their civil capacity got greater. And so lawyers who were doing defensive work, some of the bigger offices had them doing defensive work and they they would have a dedicated crew doing affirmative work. So when that happened, the U.S. attorneys got much more involved in the fraud cases and sort of ramped up slowly and then to the point where, um, you know, obviously late, I guess the early 2000s and, you know, certainly to today, they're very, very active in the area. Um, so really changed things a lot. Um, you know, Maine Justice, we would handle, the civil fraud section would handle these affirmative civil cases early in the early years because the U.S. attorneys, you know, didn't, really didn't have capacity to do it. Then they, as time went on, they got more interested and a partnership developed where um, in many of the cases, particularly the more significant cases, we work with the U.S. attorneys on those cases. Maine Justice will get a case in, uh, particularly QUITAM case, and they will talk to the U.S. attorneys about how they're handled. They'll decide whether it's joint, whether the U.S. Attorney's Office is going to be delegated the case, uh, whether it would be personally handled by Maine Justice. But typically in the larger cases these days, particularly with the larger U.S. Attorney's Offices, are the ones that have 
the interest and capacity will handle cases jointly with them now. If we look back over the statistics over the last almost 40 years, um, it's interesting that there's a million stats you can pull from them, depending on the story you want to tell. The story we, of course, like to tell is um, that an you know, increasing number of cases, uh, dollars are being recovered by relators and key counsel. And the key time cases now represent 80 cents on every dollar recovered in those cases are very cost effective, right? Every dollar invested in them, we're returning 22 to $23 back to the U.S. Treasury. What is the story that uh, you tell from your perspective on why the False Claims Act works so well? I think the incentives of the Quitam statute, the way the statute is written and the way it's structured, it's a treble damage statute. The shares are not insignificant, 15 to 25% for an intervened case, 25 to 30% share for a decline case. The penalties are significant as well. The fact is, is that the Quitam statute has incentivized people to come forward um, in, a, in a very clear way. Um, in addition, the track record under the QTM statute since 1986 has shown that, it, that a, you know, a solidly pled complaint and a good relationship uh, in the investigation and litigation between the government and the relator is going to yield good, good results. And so people see that and they say, ah, you know, this is worth, this is worth a try. I think that's what, you know, Senator Grassley and Congressman Berman wanted to see. I mean, that's exactly, you know, what they intended. And I think that that part is working. I, I think there are still issues and, and struggles with the, the way the government has to use its resources in connection with the ETAM statute. I think these are still very legitimate issues. I can't speak for the department. I'm speaking from my own experience. But I think that there still has to be an understanding about what is required to take the department's job seriously in monitoring those cases that we do not intervene in, the cases that are declined, and what that does to government resources and what that does to potential case law under the False Claims Act. You know, it, we, I think the department lawyers say this all the time, and we may sound like a broken record, but it can't be understated how much has to happen to be sure that we, we protect the interests of the United States by watching those cases, making sure they don't go off the rails, making sure the courts understand what the proper interpretation of the False Claims Act is so that we don't have a situation where a case that we were not interested in pursuing creates some law that could kill the case we want to pursue and that everyone wants to pursue. So those are, those are issues that are out there that I think uh, are not entirely well understood or if they're if they're understood, they're not really processed by people in the way that I think the department sometimes has asked people to understand them and to, to process them. It's, it's just a, it's a very, it's, it really is a tremendous drain on resources to have lawyers spend so much time on that kind of work. And we're talking not just the civil fraud section and the, and the AUSAs on, on the line level. We're talking appellate all the appellate lawyers who have to monitor the case law and the courts of appeals. We're talking the Solicitor General's office. We're talking the agencies who have to have to watch over these cases, who have to respond to discovery that could be massive in some of these cases the government decided not to pursue. So there are lots of lots of issues still out there. You know, that this is one of the, the reasons why I came back to TAF, you know, 10 years in private practice, decided to come back because I think it's important that from our side that we do a good job in encouraging the right cases forward and, and encouraging people not to move forward with the wrong cases. A lot of good case law has been made by decline cases. It's opened the door for uh, subsequent recoveries involving, involving off-label marketing and kickbacks and things of that nature. But you're right. There's a, uh, always a concern that keeps us all up at night about the wrong case moving forward that makes bad case law. And we just have to make sure we do a good job uh, monitoring that, educating the people and the people who are outside of our tent, who are practicing in our area of the law. Uh, we need to make sure that they are uh, invited in so that they don't make the bad case law. But yeah, that's, that is a, a huge concern for us going forward, for sure. So uh, Joyce, if you, um, 
if you had a magic wand and you could produce the perfect relator, how would you describe that person <laughs> or persons? <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, you know, I, I can't pretend to know what a perfect relator would be like, but I would say somebody who had a, um, a truly meritorious case that was supported by evidence that was pretty solid from the get-go, that pled a complaint that was specific enough and targeted enough that we can investigate the case in a relatively short period of time, understanding that these are complex cases that take a while to sort out um, when you're dealing with often millions and millions of documents and witnesses. A credible relator who saw with his or her eyes what happened, that did not have their own baggage, if you will, a company that could kind of just clutter up uh, his or her credibility, that had a good relator's lawyer representing them, a really, you know, an experienced lawyer who understands what the issues are and um, knows how to write a complaint, write a statement of material evidence, and help the government in ways that are helpful as opposed to harmful person who has the names of witnesses and the actual names of people who can uh, corroborate what the relator says. And, you know, someone who to some degree is willing to stand back while the government does its job. If they have an allegation that rises to the level of a criminal case, so much the better. That can be very, very helpful. And that, again, means somebody who has the credibility, who has the you know, names, documents, everything lined up and will be believed by the prosecutors when they go into to discuss the case. So that sort of, I mean, I don't think that's rocket science. I think that, you know, there have been people out there who have been in that ideal position. Um, and those are the people that maximize their chances. There's no question about it, that the case is going to move forward. There's uh, people who are watching this, listening to this, uh, including people in my office who are aspiring to go to law school. Um, my nine-year-old daughter wants to be a lawyer. Uh, she wants to be a Justice Department attorney. What would you say to these young, young women, especially who are uh, looking up to you right now? You know, I, I, I would just say work really hard and do what your head tells you, you know, you want to do. Follow that. I, I, you know, I, I don't. I didn't really have any particular goal or ambition. I just knew that I wanted to do government work. I wanted to do public interest work, and that for me was government. Um, and I, um, I just saw it as as fun every day. I mean, I you know, you wake up in the morning and you say, "Do I want to go to work?" Yeah, you know, maybe there's some days you really want to go to work, but just because you don't want to. But there was never a day that I like got up to go to work and felt like I was going in there to do the wrong thing, <laughs> quite the opposite. I felt like I was always going in there to, to do the right thing. And I was surrounded by people who wanted to do the right thing. And, and, you know, it didn't matter. It didn't matter who the attorney general was and it didn't matter who the president was. The people I work with in my little cluster always wanted to do the right thing and wanted to do their jobs well. And that was tremendously motivating. And so I just, I just work really hard. And if you think you want to do it, um, just, you know, do as well as you possibly can keep trying. If you can't get a job at first, you just keep trying. We hired uh, several people. I'll never forget who, you know, applied, they would apply. They didn't have a slot, a slot for them. They'd apply second year, didn't have a slot for them. By the third year, we did have a slot for them. And you know what? The fact that they applied twice was to their credit because we knew they really wanted to come to work with the department. And um, so, you know, I think your nine-year-old, if you just tell her to work, work as hard as she can, uh, make it clear when she applies for a job that this is what she really wants to do with herself. Um, and, you know, things will fall into place pretty, pretty easily for her. Uh, Joyce, you touched on something that uh, was actually part of my closing notes. Although uh, you know, we didn't always agree with your positions, uh, I always knew that you were above political influence and the people that worked in your office, it was never about politics. Different presidents would come and go, assistant attorney generals would come and go, but we knew that as long as you were at the manning the ship, 
uh, we knew exactly what course things were on and we, we understood uh, that politics wasn't going to play a part in that. Um, I just want to acknowledge your 37 years of public service uh, to our country. This was the one interview I really looked forward to uh, just catching up with you over the, after all these years of your retirement. We really appreciate the time that you spent with us. Do you have any closing remarks or any statements you want to give to the, the world that's out there? Well, I think you've done a really nice job. Thank you, Jeff, for asking me. Um, it, it's it's actually been fun thinking about all of this. I want to say just one, maybe just a couple things, just because they were so important to me. We didn't really talk about them, but yeah, my please. predecessors at the department were Stuart Schiffer and Mike Kurtzen. Um, We lost both of them a number of years ago now. They were everything to me. They they helped me with my career, but it, it was not just that. They were extraordinary people. Um, they always wanted to do the right thing. They always did the right thing. There was no favoritism. They were fair. They were decent. And they're the kind of government lawyer I always aspired to be. And I think for anybody who's listening, that that is the government lawyer you want to aspire to be. The person who is fair, the person who does what they think is the right thing to do and knows that it's the interests of the taxpayer in the United States that, that come first. It sounds just a little corny, but I really do believe that, and that's what helped me get through my days. Um, and you know, I just want people to understand that, even though we may have disagreements with relators now and then about you know this, that, or the other thing, ultimately the people you're dealing with at the department are those people, and they're just trying to protect you know the taxpayer and the interests of the government. And uh, that's it. Very true. Joyce, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Fraud in America as we spent time with Joyce Branda, who for over three decades was in key Department of Justice leadership positions and was a key player in our country's fight against corporate fraud. This episode had financial support provided by Reese Marquetos LLP, a whistleblower law firm in Texas. You can find out more information about this firm at www.rm-firm.com. Again, next week, we're going to head out to Chicago to spend time with whistleblower Jim Holtz-Richter and his lawyer, Michael Ben, in which we're going to dive into their case against Northrop Grumman, a 17-year battle in which the government declined to intervene. They moved the case forward for eight years, and then the government intervened or re-intervened in the case, and the case ultimately came to a positive, successful resolution for the government and for Mr. Holtzrichter. So until next time, make sure you subscribe and like this channel and this podcast, and join us next time on Fraud in America. If you believe you've witnessed fraud against the government at your job or want to learn more about these important laws to combat fraud, visit fraudinamerica.com. On our website, you can find whistleblower lawyers, blogs from these expert attorneys, and more. You can also find a transcript of today's show, show notes, a way to contact our team, and a way to chip in to make sure we can keep bringing you the latest on fraud. This episode was edited and produced by Rachel Brooks, and our theme music is by Connor Chaos. A big thanks to our staff and researchers of Jeb White, James King, Emma Bass, Jackie DeMar, Kate Scanlon, Brian Markovitz, and Max Boltman. You can learn more about them at fraudinamerica.com slash team. Fraud in America is a project of Taxpayers Against Fraud Education Fund. 